I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. This week, we're uh, coming to you live? No. <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty canned, I guess. With Ryan Cagle, everyone's favorite Twitter Pentecostal guy. <laughs> He's my uh, favorite, that's he, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, he has a very complicated relationship with Pentecostalism, or maybe Pentecostalism has a very complicated relationship with him, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. Anyways, it's a great episode. Uh, we talked to him about this new project that he's starting up in his uh, home county in Alabama called Jubilee House. Um, it's a really neat project, first of all, but it's also cool just to hear Ryan talk about ecclesiology, to hear him talk about theology. Um, it's good. You know, uh, sometimes on the podcast, well, okay, like, listen, last week, our conclusion was that th that Christianity is very broken and it sucks, right? <laughs> um, this week, uh, we're going to talk to somebody who maybe has uh, some good ideas about it on the horizon. Uh, maybe a little bit of hope, a little bit of glimmer of hope out there. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. So anyways, you can uh, find Ryan's project at jubileehouse.co and read all about it there and see what they're up to. Um, also, we talked to Ryan about uh, his, uh, I don't know, other various side projects like uh, tabletop role-playing games and whatnot. You can find all of that stuff at ryankagel.com. Um, also, you, you might recall that, uh, I guess like a year ago, he did design some very cool stickers for us, and those are all on the Redbubble store. So go there and check those out and buy Ryan's good stickers. Yeah, Ryan also has his own Redbubble store that has a ton of extremely cool niche Christian left content. So if you want a sticker of, I don't know, Paulo Ferreira or Dorothy Day, uh, you can find them there. And you should. They are extremely cool, very rad. And uh, it's great to have Ryan on the show. Finally, uh, let's get over to the interview. Thanks for coming on the show, Ryan. Ryan's a longtime friend of the podcast in lots of different ways, I think. Uh, Ryan designed some great stickers for us a while back. He's always posting great content on Christianity and Liberation, uh, a fellow traveler, you could say. And most recently, Ryan has been part of a super neat church experiment called Jubilee House in Walker County, Alabama. Ryan, you also have your hands in like a thousand different projects. So why don't we just let you introduce yourself for uh, for this conversation? Sure. Uh, where to start? Uh, like you said, I do a lot of shit. <laughs> um, I have my hands in all kinds of things. Um, uh, I think uh, I would people would say that I have too many irons in the fire for sure. But that's beside the point. Um, 
I guess just to begin with, I'm a self-described spiritual vagabond, a haphazard artist, and aspiring storyteller. Uh, I live in the backwoods of Alabama with my wife and two feral children. Uh, I've worked for, in a myriad of church contexts over the last 12 years, and I'm currently pursuing a Master's of Divinity and Social Transformation from the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, which is super rad. I'm so stoked to start that uh, process here in the fall. Um, my family recently moved back to the South after living in Flagstaff, Arizona and being out West in a totally different context than what we are used to, uh, where I worked to curate experimental faith gatherings for young adults and served as a planter slash director of a multi-church collaborative youth ministry called the Flagstaff Youth Cooperative. I'm a trained spiritual director who uses tabletop role-playing games to foster spiritual self-discovery and more to the point of why I'm here, like you, you mentioned, I am currently working to plant an anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and LGBTQ plus affirming church community in Walker County, where I grew up. All right, that's great. A real Christian husband father, if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> that's what I was going in the best for. Way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the best way, uh, meaning no, no offense by it, I guess. Uh, cool. Well, being a person who is involved in a spiritual community, it is really different than just you know being a person who talks about theology or whatever on a podcast, uh, like Dean and I do. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the big aspirations for Jubilee House and some of the other ecclesiological ideas behind it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess for a start, you know, Jubilee House is really just a dream about what it means to kind of collectively struggle for a different world, which is like, you know, really vague and ambiguous. Um, but, you know, for this whole, the heart of it is about trying to incarnate a theology of liberation here in the backwoods of Alabama. Because, you know, we can, like you said, we can, talking about theology, all day is like my jam. I love it. I could do it all day, every day. Um, but at the end of the day for me, um, if it's not incarnated, it's it's useless. And so really that's what Jubilee House is for me. It's really the culmination of kind of just years of dreaming and wrestling with these theological ideas, uh, specifically within liberation theology and um, thinking through how I can be a part of seeing these things kind of come to fruition in my own home. Uh, in the place that I have like the deepest roots. Um, so Jubilee House, like I said, it's just, it's a dream. Um, you know, it's a dream where I hope that we can struggle for a world that's free of evils, of the evils of racism, oppression, and alienation. Um, a dream of a radically different future uh, at, in a larger context, but more specifically for Walker County, which is a place that is um, troubled and difficult and um, struggling in many ways. Um, and this is a future that for us at Jubilee, you know, obviously the title Jubilee would be, um, some people would automatically know kind of where that comes from. Uh, but it's the, you know, this biblical concept of Jubilee is just really central to the ministry that we're hoping to do. And it's because we believe that it's central to the ministry of Jesus. Um, there's a reason, you know, he, he announces in Nazareth uh, and quotes the prophet Isaiah about announcing the year of the Lord's favor. And um, that's something that I've just began to take really seriously over the last decade or so, and something that I'm hoping that we can embody here uh, in this work. Um, and so Jubilee House is about working for that future where not only just the material needs of people are met, but the spiritual needs as well, uh, specifically of those that are the most vulnerable and marginalized uh, in our community. Um, and this is not through like processes of like charity, but of solidarity. Um, and everything we do is kind of uh, everything we're going to do. It's it's really so just in the early stages of, of dreaming and planning and kind of working on the back end of things at the moment. Um, but everything is approached as an experiment. Um, so there's always learning to do 
And um, it is this idea of it, it, again, it's just, it's rooted in a lot of different things. Primarily, you know, it's, it's very much influenced by the idea of like base communities. Um, it's influenced in many ways by like uh, St. Benedict and this idea of our work uh, and our prayer being, you know, the same. Uh, it's influenced by concepts like uh, temporary autonomous zones, which we've seen some of those in the last year pop up um, in the wake of, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter protests like at Capitol Hill in Portland. Um, I mean, the whole goal of it really, uh, and one of the quotes on our website is actually from um, a long gone info shop. Uh, and it talks about being a community of resistance. And it says in that, in their like about me, this was years ago that I found this quote, it says a community of resistance is a demonstration of the lives we want. Individually, we may be stuck in this real world, but collectively we inhabit another real world. And when I think about that, I to me, it sounds like the church. It sounds like Acts 2. It sounds like this messy um, program of, of solidarity and hospitality and working um, as equals with other people. And so uh, Jubilee House, that's really, I guess, the heart of it. Um, and it's just rooted in a very spacious Christian theology and expressions that we get to see across the board uh, in church history that sometimes may be more marginalized views, of course, like um, based communities. They're definitely very in, uh, influenced by like the Catholic worker movement and Dorothy Day. Uh, granted, I don't think they, Dorothy and Peter Marin and stuff went very far enough, very far enough. And I think you two may agree with me there. I think we have some uh, similar history and engagement with that kind of early Christian anarchism kind of stuff that happened. Um, so yeah, that's kind of Jubilee House in a nutshell. We're going to be focused on, again, primary solidarity versus charity, um, trying to combat food insecurity in our county, um, trying to cultivate a space, specifically a space uh, for spiritual kind of formation and discovery for LGBTQ plus youth and young adults and, and even older adults, because it is a, still a very hostile environment in our county if you are of a gender or sexual um, marginalized identity. So yeah, that some of those things are just really, really central to what we're doing. That's so cool to hear you talk about it and lots of stuff that we're going to ask you more about and kind of keep unpacking, I think, that answer for the rest of the episode, which is great. Uh, I think that's fantastic. One thing you mentioned just to maybe dig into a little bit as well is uh, you, you said Jubilee is this kind of tradition that's informing it or this uh, biblical idea that's informing the project. And I think probably a lot of people who listen to the podcast know what that is, but maybe a lot of people also don't. I, I can never really tell who listens to this podcast, uh, but I do know that we have a, a good smattering of like, you know, uh, longtime church folks and folks who've been out of the church for a really long time. So maybe you could spend a little bit of time Explaining that, what's the sort of tradition? Why choose the name Jubilee? Uh, what's that sort of, what does that name signify for that community? Yeah, so um, so Jubilee, like on, on the one sense, it's joy, right? We think of like the Jubilee and not necessarily in the biblical sense, but like joy, uh, celebration, uh, which I think are things that should be central uh, to the Christian uh, faith and life. You know, I think church should feel more like a party um, than, you know, a funeral service, uh, which some people would probably disagree um, but Jubilee in the biblical sense, so, you know, we, if you go back into, um, the Mosaic law and the Torah, there's this concept of Jubilee, which, you know, comes around, um, where the forgiveness of debts happens, land gets, um, redistributed back to the original owners. And it's kind of like, there's just this reset, the land gets a rest. It's kind of like, um, kind of a major Sabbath for everyone and everything, uh, and a reset of all the inequality that's happened and, um, wealth you know, distribution and things like that. And um, 
we see it later on uh, kind of come it comes to fruition in, in many ways um, covertly, like in the prophets and, and the way they talk about the future uh, reign of God. And, and in Isaiah specifically, um, in the servant song, he talks about uh, coming to declare the year of the Lord's favor, to give sight to the blind, to, to feed the hungry, to set the captives free. And it's kind of like this vision of a just just world of um, this of, for, for me and in, in being in the Christian tradition. Uh, and I think probably for you guys, too, what, you, what we would call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God is what I would prefer to call it over kingdom. Um, and then in Jesus's tradition, uh, when Jesus gets up, there's this whole episode at Nazareth. And, you know, there's all this kind of weird undertones going on in his community because he's kind of people are calling him the Messiah. And they're just, you know, he's this backwoods carpenter that, you know, Joseph's boy. Um, and he gets up on, at the synagogue and uh, on that Sunday to read from from the scroll of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah. He quotes that song about announcing the year of the Lord's favor. And so for me, when I interpret that story, um, I interpret Jesus building upon Isaiah and building upon this idea that Jubilee is not something that just doesn't come around every now and then or every few years. And, you know, they, scholars argue as if, if Israel ever actually practiced Jubilee or not, which to me is to totally irrelevant because uh, it's there for a reason. And we can take it and we can live into it or not and we can think critically about it or not. And I think for me in Jubilee House, it's about really thinking critically about what does this look like now? What does it mean to live into the kingdom of God? You know, I know a lot of my faith formation in my youth was really about this idea of like God's kingdom being, you know, somewhere in the sky, post-death, rapture, all this, you know, all this mess. Um, but when we go back and we read the Gospels, especially if we, if we start with that proclamation, I think, that Jesus makes at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, and we think through all of this kingdom talk, and we think through all of this salvation talk, we see it as this material reality that is taking root here in the present moment. And for us at Jubilee, the reason we want to participate in that is because we want to be an outpost, so to speak, of the kingdom of God. We want to be a place that offers something different. And I, I say outpost, but really we, we would say probably a temporary autonomous zone because we see it as this kind of this um, way of, you know, engaging directly like in our community um, that is outside the normal bounds uh, that liberates. And for us, that really shapes the vision of what we want to see accomplished. Uh, in Walker County. And so Jubilee is not only just about joy and celebration, but it's about righting of wrongs. It's about it's about restoration and healing and reparations. And that's all got to be a part of it. Um, and so like it really deeply, um, this concept is just really deeply influenced kind of the things we hope to see happen. Uh, the initiatives, we don't, we don't call them ministries, we call them initiatives uh, that we kind of want to see take root, whether that be the community farm or whether that be uh, a Jubilee Fund, which is just going to help pay off people's debts um, because there's so much just debt and poverty where we live. And so uh, building up the community that's not just doing the charity, but is living into this reality of the kingdom of God, which for us, the primary metaphor for understanding the kingdom of God is this concept of Jubilee. Yeah, it's cool to hear you work that out um, like very materially. I think there's a tendency within, you know, very progressive and liberal types of Christianity to use the whole idea of jubilee as this like um this like metaphor i guess or like a thought experiment that's just like this thing you should think about like wouldn't it be wild if the world was like this different way and jesus is telling us that we should think about this world in this different way but like no one sorry not no one but 
rarely do progressive Christian communities really like write the checks to like actually do some of that work. And it's cool to, you know, hear how you've worked that out in your own community. Um, pretty exciting. Well, uh, just pivoting a little bit here to, to get some more of, uh, some more of the ideas that you laid out here. Uh, a minute ago when you were kind of describing Jubilee house and, and what was going on there, you said that it's a spacious religious community. Um, and I like I like that that framing of it. It's a cool way to put it. Um, and I think that is <laughs> maybe a good way to describe you as a person as well. Just if anyone follows you on social media for more than a few minutes, they'll quickly hear about like all kinds of different things that you're very into. Um, <laughs> uh, role playing games, uh, liberation theology, but also like Pentecostal theological underpinnings that you have. Um, so maybe you could say a little bit more about that uh, and how how that experience in Pentecostalism plays into Jubilee House, or at least just how uh, how that uh, plays into how you think about church in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that we keep going back to all the just random things that make up kind of my Twitter feed, which is a lot. And I'm sorry for all of you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, Pentecostalism is something I have such a strange relationship with. Um, and it's really been in the last, I don't know, six years that I really feel like I've been able to reclaim it. I think for a long time, I would call myself reluctantly Pentecostal. Um, so for me, uh, one thing that I love about Pentecostalism is that it's, it's a very varied and diverse uh, experience of the faith, depending on which particular Pentecostal tradition you find yourself in. And even then, it's not necessarily going to look like the other communities around you. So my Pentecostal experience may like vary wildly from someone else's who's uh, listening to this. I know so many people have been so hurt by Pentecostalism. Uh, and the state of it today just doesn't look at all like uh, what it looked like at its inception, and which is just so crazy and disheartening to me. Um, and, and the Pentecostalism I was kind of reared in, in the faith, uh, was definitely not didn't look like the early Pentecostalism um, in the ways that it could have. Uh, but for me, Pentecostalism is like, not only is it like this mystical, modern mystical tradition, and I call Pentecostalism a tradition, and a lot of people do not like that because it's relatively new in world history and Christian history, but it, it is a tradition with deep, deep roots and such a very beautiful expression in the faith. And um, so for me, you know, it's, it's this mystical tradition um, because it's got this theology around the spirit that is just liberating. And um, to me, um, the thing about Pentecostalism that is just so attractive and so like life-giving, the things that like in the middle of all the mess for me uh, in, when I was in Pentecostalism, like in actual Pentecostal community, which I'm not anymore, um, I think I've burned every bridge possible uh, locally. Um, you know, some of the fastest growing churches here are Pentecostal slash charismatic churches. Um, none of which would ever have me uh, or and, and I, I don't say that to like diss them. It's just that um, we're at different places. But to me, they're not Pentecostal enough. And um, but it was this poor, tiny Pentecostal wild house church that really was like the most formative years of my faith. Um, it was there that I like learned to engage in scripture. It was there that I learned to like that I could argue with other people about what this text means it was there that I learned to, you know, pray. It was there that I saw like a breaking down of like racial barriers, economic barriers. And it was there that like, I saw like these ideas of like patriarchy and hierarchy just kind of fade. And that's not to, not to say that it was like completely like utopian and void of those things. Um, but for me and my like experience with Pentecostalism, like crucial to my, like what I come away with from Pentecostalism with is that the spirit does whatever the hell she wants. And 
the wind blows where it pleases, you know, um, and the spirit speaks through whoever she wants to speak through, whether that be someone with an education or someone who's illiterate, whether that be someone with money or someone with who's poor, whether that be a man or whether it be the pastor or someone in the congregation rebuking the pastor in the middle of service, because that's where the spirit led them to correct that, that person. And so um, for me, Pentecostalism in my experiences were really wildly like egalitarian breaking down hierarchies, it's dynamic. Um, and even though we were still so separated from like historical Pentecostalism and like its early days, uh, it still very much was an echo of that early Pentecostal movement, which was uh, a movement of marginalized folks, black folks and poor folks at Azusa. And I, that's, that's a whole other argument within Pentecostalism. I won't say that Azusa is like the birthplace of Pentecostalism because the spirit was doing things uh, we would say that there was these things kind of happening globally. Uh, but for me, my tradition was rooted in Azusa specifically. Um, and so you had this early movement of being uh, radically like racially diverse long before like um, there, like the struggle for civil rights and like equality was happening. Like within Pentecostalism, there's already break this breaking down of like racial barriers. And that was like some of the earliest, biggest critiques of it was that it, it treated blacks and whites as equal um and then it treated men and women as equal and so like um it got hijacked really quick um but those early things are also i, I experienced the echoes of those in in my pentecostal experience um and so it's definitely deeply shaped me because to me it it's what the church looked like it should be dynamic um not not that it should be just dis completely disconnected from anything historically or tradition um, but it has to live into a life animated by the spirit. And for me, my understanding of the spirit is one that is liberative, uh, whether that be from my personal struggles and compulsions um, to like the material realities in our community. It's so cool to hear you talk about that. Uh, I was in a charismatic youth group in my adolescence, and it was a pretty right wing situation. <laughs> I'm glad I got out of it for sure. But um, just a weird experience all around. Um, and I think a lot of people have different opinions about what the church should be or how a, a spiritual community should function. And like you said, these things get kind of co-opted into the culture war in all kinds of different ways. Um, I always think of like that documentary Jesus Camp about uh, the sort of charismatic George W. Bush <laughs> contingent um, that was around. Uh, anyway, as someone who's really trying to do something new with church and in that tradition, but in particular, just thinking about what it means to start a new church um, in the conditions that you're in, what role do you think that uh, a church ought to fill in the this particular cultural moment? You know, what's the point, I guess, of uh, creating one more church uh, in any tradition, I guess? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's, you know, and I will say, like, Jubilee House is not Pentecostal, like Big P Pentecostal. I'm Pentecostal. Um, I doubt, I don't know if anyone else really involved would consider themselves that. Um, at this point, we don't really have a tradition that we're, like, necessarily, like, rooted in, in the, in the sense of, like, other than, like, a, a liberation theology. That's why I say we're, like, we're spacious. Uh, it's going to err that we're forming this kind of spacious Christian community, um, because, finding like-minded people all from one kind of particular Christian tradition would be nearly impossible here. Um, but, you know, like I, I would say like more broadly, the role, I think uh, I, I've wrestled with that, that why another church? Uh, and that kind of hit really, uh, hit, hit really close to home, Dean, because I used to be so frustrated when I was here in Walker County 10 years ago and more than that about all these people coming in and planting churches 
And I used to think I would never, ever be a church planter. I would never come here acting like I could be a savior, like I could start this place. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I left is because I didn't want to be just some other guy starting some other white dude starting another church in Walker County. Um, but here I am <laughs> doing that in some sense. Um, but for me, it, I had to leave, I think, for me to get back to that place of realizing, like, I kind of had some survivor skill and that that's this place is my home. And um, and for me, if no one's going to, like, represent Jesus the way I think Jesus should be represented here, then, like, what do I do about that? How do I help kind of cultivate a different reality? And show that there's other options than kind of right-wing charismatic fundamentalism. Um, but the church is a, as a whole, you know, I think um, I am sometimes reluctantly a churchgoer, <laughs> which is weird to say as someone who's been a pastor for like 12 years at this point in various capacities. And, um, but it's because so often the church just doesn't do anything good. Like not, not the sense like, you know, feeding people once a month is great. It's holy work. Like having a place of worship is great. It's holy work. But like ultimately it almost always feels as if like the needle's never getting moved forward in the world. And that and when it is, it's usually not the church uh making that happen. Um and so I think more broadly, I would say like the role of the church uh in this cultural moment would be like to just especially like affluent white churches, just shut the hell up. <laughs> Listen to your community, stop thinking like, you know we are the saviors of these places and that we have it figured out. And I think in our particular cultural moment, um, in some ways the church has to take a back seat. And that's like for us, the, the actual faith communities aspect is not secondary, but it, it's not the primary, primary way we are functioning like uh, in organizing ourselves. It's the other work. It's the mutual aid. It's, it's these acts of solidarity um, that we hope will actually transcend our actual like faith community and that people who are not Christians, who are not interested in faith, will find deep, meaningful connections there. Um, I'm not saying that's the answer in this cultural moment, but that's really kind of where we're, we're leaning. And I think as broadly as a whole, the church really just needs to decenter itself. Uh, it definitely needs to divest from this nonprofit industrial complex, because like I said, feeding people a few times a month or having a, a weekly soup kitchen is great and it's holy work. Um, but ultimately it seems as if churches have real, no real interest in dealing with the actual um, problems. They want to deal with the symptoms, but they don't want to deal um, with the cause, the root cause of these problems. And it just maintains the cycle. You know, um, it's one thing to feed people. It's another thing to figure out why they're, why they're hungry people in your community and work to see that changed. And um so I think the church's biggest things it could do right now is just to reimagine what it, who who we are. Like we don't need. I know um, there's this like tendency to like Benedict option and like be this outpost of like the kingdom of God and this idea of like everything we do like is going to be internally like focused and like changing the way we live, divesting from these things. But like if it's not for your community, then it's like it's useless. Um, and so like we got to start with repentance so that we can move to reparations. And the church has a lot of repenting to do. And I say that as someone who is a cis hetero white dude in Alabama uh, who passes very easily as just a Southern, good old Southern boy, you know. And um, part of like the work for me, as far as in this moment here, is not only just like showing that there's other options for Christianity, 
but it's also like trying to um, leverage my privilege in this place for the people who don't have it. And uh, I think that's central to ch- the, the future of whatever this moment. And the church is like a massive decline, I guess, institutionally across the board. Um, and so I think that's something we need to lean into in a sense of like, there's things we need to let go of uh, because they're not really doing anything any good. So like, we have to be able to step back and reimagine like, how do we work for a better world and not just keep putting band-aids on bullet wounds? Cool. That's a, a really good word, I think. Um, everyone's so invested in uh, in the reason why the, the kids aren't coming back to church. And uh, Ryan, what I hear you saying is like, well, <laughs> you're you're reaping what you're sowing, I guess. You have to kind of deal with that now and maybe rethink, uh, rethink what you're doing in the first place. That's um, probably some pretty good advice. Um, you know, you mentioned liberation theology a handful of times, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit more. Um, on the Jubilee House website, there are some, some good quotes from all of our, our liberation the- theologian faves, um, like Gustavo Gutierrez and James Cone and so on. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to tell us about the role uh, liberation theology plays within the the community that you're building? Yeah. Um, like, you know, I, I again, I mentioned it some, and I mentioned how kind of a, we're trying to form kind of a more spacious Christian theology for sure. Um, but something, and I, I kind of just talked about this some, is that this part of the world, I'm sure it's elsewhere, but I'm just more familiar with the South. Um, it's really lacking in any access to theology outside of kind of a right-wing fundamentalist approach. Um, there's definitely some liberal folks here in the county, um, but it's still, I would say, is kind of like this neoliberal kind of impotent kind of theology that doesn't really um, address the issues at hand either. Um, and so like for us, like liberation theology is central to kind of how we're functioning because like the way we have this material analysis and this class analysis and we bring in that that influence from liberation theology for people like James Cone and, and Gutierrez and uh, Leonardo Boff and all, all these different voices. Um, and not to, we, we hope to be influenced and shaped by them definitely and the way that um, definitely in the theology we're kind of preaching and teaching, but again, like in, in the way we're like incarnating uh, Christian community into the world, um, Cause like I've been just radic, I've just been radically influenced by like Dr. James Cone. I've been, and even people who are not necessarily liberation theologians like Dorothy Day and, uh, Dor- and then Dorothy Sole. And I, I'm not actually not sure that's even how you pronounce her name. I don't know how to speak German. So if that's wrong, I'm sorry. Um, you know, so like it definitely comes out in our theology, but again, it's more central to how we're organizing ourselves, um, and how we're kind of operating in the world. Um, trying to live into these acts of solidarity and things like that Um, and pushing forward that, you know, like we're all in this together and that there's no, um, there's no salvation. And that's here. Everything is so individualistic and everything is so stuck on this idea of individual salvation. But for us in our theology, it's very shaped by these voices is that there is no salvation until we're all saved. Like there is no me being saved until everyone is saved. And saved uh, for me and my, my theological understanding can definitely just be interchanged with the term liberation. Um, you know, and I think one of the biggest issues um, with folks who do engage like liberation theology in church context is that it never goes far enough to like change our systems or our structures. And so that's kind of like the starting place from us is that I'm not some trained theologian. I uh, I wouldn't even call it maybe organic theologian in the sense of like I've just been on the ground working and doing ministry and reading and reading and reading and reading and engaging with these texts and voices um, in some way. 
Um, but for us, like, so the starting point is like, we're not having to rethink like in the sense of like already pre-established structures for ourselves through this lens of like liberation theology and how it shapes our ecclesiology. We're, we're going to, we're able to start from that place and dream from that place, um, which is really great. And it takes a lot, a lot of all the unnecessary work of like trying to salvage decaying hierarchies and whatever tradition we could find ourselves in as far as like mainline or Episcopal or ELCA or wherever. Um, and I'm glad there's people who are called to those things, um, but I'm not. <laughs> and so for us, you know, it's it's just really central to how we are approaching church. You know, we're influenced um, by, again, I mentioned the base communities, Catholic workers, and definitely like, I would say not in a strictly like liberation theolo- theological like voices, but like um, to me, the church has so much to learn from like, the Black Panthers and the New York, New York Young Lords that it's like, like these are these are like organizations that to me are great examples of liberation theology in action, even if they're not like actually de facto Christian in any sense of the word. Um, here, though, I would say one of the things that's interesting about this context with it with, while we're talking about liberation theology is that there is this major skepticism for anything here that is outside of our kind of typical understanding of biblical or gospel. Um, and so one of the things I'm really this really central to kind of this work within liberation theology and Jubilee House is um, is contextualizing it in the sense of like trying to drop liberation theology from so it's just theology right um, and that's something like I, I remember uh, reading in Boss work um, how that he hoped that there would be a day in the future when it would no longer be liberation theology it would just be theology. And so, like, we don't live in that historical moment uh, because liberation theology is still looked at with all this contempt and issues and and all these different things. But, like, one of the things we're trying to do with Jubilee House is live into that as, like, a reality. Like, this is just theology for us. This is just core and central. It's not some side discipline. It's not just, you know, these, you know, uh, fringe voices in the Christian tradition. But these are these are the people who have spoken about these things and have gotten it right. And these are the people like whose foundations we're starting with versus just adding them into our kind of pre-built structures and the way we approach theology and, and, and church in general. It's such a cool uh, mashup of ideas, traditions. I really like that a lot about the project, just willing to uh, hear whatever is being said. <laughs> that sounds good and and take that on board and, and see what, what shakes out. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit too about the the material side of this. So you have a lot of um, mutual aid projects in the works. Uh, you keep talking about this kind of value of, of solidarity. Tell us a little bit about that. What's uh, mutual aid for Jubilee, and uh, why make a church that centers it? What what can the church do in that community through that that sort of work? Right. So to me, like you know, solidarity is like I would say like that. That's just what the gospel is. Like it's not. This, it, it's about, it's coming alongside among, instead of like two and four, like churches do ministry two and four people when it should be like with and among, you know, it's like, um, and that's like where the issues come in for me. And so like for us, the way I would understand just personally, like mutual aid, you know, it's just this, it's this thing by which we, we seek to create healthy and more like deeply interconnected communities, you know, while like at the end of the day, recognizing that there's no local or national governments or programs or charities or even churches in and of themselves like that are going to make Walker County a healthier and more beautiful place um, that it's going to have to come from mutual aid. It's going to have to come in these uh, building these kind of networks of solidarity. You know, um, this idea, you know, that like these organizations are good, um, but they're not really capable of like 
fixing the problems. And I'm not saying Jubilee House is capable of fixing those problems, but I think mutual aid and these concepts of solidarity are definitely um, the best place to start. Um, and for us, we, we hope that all of these projects, so we have the, a ton of like ideas, like I'm just like an idea person and sometimes I think too big and sometimes I don't, <laughs> and it's like, you know, and then I just get so like focused in on something, but like, you know, we, we just trying to address like, what are the issues in our community? How can we invite voices in our community to influence what we're doing, like, and speak to what the needs are and like, um, the poverty rate in my town of Parish in Walker County is over double the national average. Um, and there's a we have a grocery store, but it's really expensive. Uh, so technically, we're not a food desert because like we're not like 10 miles outside of like a grocery store. Um, but it's like not affordable uh, for a lot of people, especially fresh food. And the fresh food you get there is not really great, which is strange. Just being in the South, you would think all the farming communities and things like that. Um, so like we have this this idea of like starting kind of like a mutual aid, like community fridge program across the county. I'm currently writing a grant for it and I have a proposal like for our town to like launch the pilot next uh, in two weeks. Um, but, you know, like mutual aid, it's, you know, the responsibility essentially is like for for the growth, the responsibility for like growth and flourishing of our like our home and our community rest on everyone and on our communities and like we have to be able to work together and build those connections and those relational kind of dynamics to put in place and honestly the south is just like a hotbed for that like someone may be vehemently racist but like if you you break down in walmart parking lot there's going to be like eight people fighting over who's going to jump you off or like recharge a battery for you and so like they don't understand mutual aid but like there's already like this thing that is like baked into the way like community happens here in the south um, that makes it really just fertile soil for like these ideas to come to fruition. And I think one of the biggest issues is that a lot of times people don't, especially here in the South, is like that people are, they're told these things, these ideas, concepts, socialism, communism, whatever, are just like bad. But really it's like, that's what they actually would want if you were like to sit down and talk to them and not talk to them with those particular terms. And like, there's just so much room for like those things to take root. Um, and so like, that's what we're hoping to do is to help cultivate that imagination. So like for us, mutual aid and everything we do really is rooted in that it has to start with imagination because so many people here don't realize that like we could, we could build a different world. We can build a different way of doing community. We can build a different way uh, of how we participate in, in transactions, whether that be, you know, like stores or purchasing and all these different things. Like we, we can do things differently. And so like, part of the like generative work for like Jubilee House is just trying to open up people enough to in conversations so that we can begin to imagine and then we can like lead them into like the practical side of like what mutual aid looks like and what acts of solidarity look like. Um, and so like, you know, so much of church ministry is like I said, is really done for and to others rather than like with and among them. And to me, I just don't think that's the gospel. I don't. Um, and so for us, like that mutual aid is just really about interrogating kind of that white savior colonialist kind of complex that is just so deeply embedded in Christianity. Um, I don't really like concept of like missions and things like that. To me, mutual aid over like missions is much better because I don't, I don't have anything to, I'm, I'm just some poor redneck in the backwoods of Alabama. Like I don't, I don't have anything to save anyone with, even if I wanted to. Um, but I do have like my life and I do have my experiences and I do, I can help build connections and struggle like communally for something better. Um, and so like, you know, it's about interrogating those things for us, um, that is like deeply rooted in like Christianity and the church. And like, 
rethinking like building initiatives that are meant to be rooted in the community versus like outside of the community and you know it, it you know like again feeding people is great but like there's other issues there and there's people there that have gifts and talents that could help solve those problems uh, but they're not going to come to your church because it's boring or because you hate gay people or or, or for whatever myriad of reasons they may have um, so how do you invite those people along with you um, and come in alongside them and allow them to influence and change and that's like really critical to these initiatives that we're doing um, because Everything we do, planned obsolescence is like, you know, this idea of things breaking down. Like, so you'll have to buy another one, which is like just so corrupt and wrong. Like, you know, like Apple like has admitted to like slowing phones down after so many generations, right? But like, what if we take that like concept like within ministry and to me, like mutual aid is like just the thing, if we approach ministry as mutual aid, like it makes this idea just so much more feasible. We flip like on a planned obsolescence on its head and say like our church ministries, are are going to stop being our church ministries at some point that we're going to start this thing and cultivate this thing and build it up in the community so that it can be its own thing and it can just be the communities and it has nothing to do in being tethered to us and our giving or you know our our need for money or anything like that so like it's rooted it becomes fully rooted in the community um so this idea that everything we start is eventually the goal is for it to not be controlled, overseen, or lorded over by uh, Jubilee House. It's meant to be handed fully into the hands of the, the larger community to do with it what they see fit to do with it. And um, so for us, uh, that's really central. Like with this community fridge program, like we're hoping to catalyze it, um, but we're hoping that eventually it will just be led by people who are continuing to be empowered in the community, whether they be a part of Jubilee House like proper, so to speak, or not. Um, same thing with like this idea. Um, currently working on a proposal and grant to start like a community farm uh, on the old football field in my hometown. Um, and so all these different things like pieces are just a part of that. Um, definitely some things will definitely still be a little more connected to Jubilee, like the Jubilee Fund, which will be like forgiving people's debts and things like that. Um, but definitely like central to the whole process is just imagining even ministry differently in the way that it can grow and take root but then exist beyond the church so to speak whether that be like literal or figuratively you know as you're talking through uh you know some of these ideas about solidarity and like the the, the way that mutual aid kind of plays out uh in church spaces i mean it's it's pretty clear like how rooted all of this is to your community specifically which i i mean is good right like obviously that's how it should be if uh, your church is in a place it should reflect the values and the needs and desires of that place um and i guess uh what is interesting about it is you know jubilee house has this connection to a, a, a geography a place but also it's you know like where you grew up it's like this connection to it's an extension of you in this community that's kind of interesting so i don't know what what's it like to be putting something together there in this place that you came from, right? Are you finding it easy to come back home? Are you finding it to be like, you know, uh, you're, you're the prophet that no one ever listens to in their hometown? Um, how's that all work out? Yeah, um, I think I alluded to it a little earlier. I left because I was feeling like the prophet, unwelcomed, you know, you know, nothing, uh, you know, that, that what's the, you know, nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? When nothing good comes from Walker County. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of how I felt for the longest time. And um, it took me getting away to kind of like be able to come back, I think. Um, and it's really not been hard to be back. It's been so life-giving, honestly, just on a personal level to be back here. 
Um, granted, I'm still kind of acclimating and thinking through and dreaming, but it's definitely going to feel like kicking a hornet's nest. I actually had someone, so I actually like on Sunday mornings, I go, I go to the Disciples of Christ Church, um, and uh, that's where my, they give me an they give me an office space here, and just really cool people, and trying to see what the long term like connections there could be uh, with the other work I'm doing. Um, but like someone was like, man, you were really kicking the hornet's nest uh, on the Walker County Sheriff's Department's website last week, weren't you? And I was like, well, you know, someone's got to give it to them. Um, so I know like those things are kind of coming and I've, I've kind of been like concerned about it because, like I said, I've I burned every bridge possible here. <laughs> uh, it seems like, you know, nearly a decade ago. And um, it's a lot of stuff like that I've talked about with my wife and, you know, she's like concerned, like, you know, you can't be like so outspoken about these things because like, you know, they're going to target you because like small town politics are like no joke. Like if you never lived in like kind of like corrupt small town Jasper, which is the seat of our county, like used to be the number one place in the country to get a hitman uh, in the whole country. Um, so there's like tons of people go missing here, like all kinds of just crazy stuff on that end. Uh, and then, of course, like just like on a very real level of like people don't like the Christianity that I, I feel like it is more true to uh, Jesus, you know, um, here. Uh, it gets, you know, called all kinds of different kinds of things. And so right now, everything is still pretty quiet, I would say, for the most part. And most of the stuff that we're currently doing is still so much in the dream kind of planning phase that it kind of feels like a type of espionage. But like, I know it's coming. Like when things start really rolling and like, you know, um, the more outspoken you are here, the worse it's going to be. But the thing is, is that the folks here about their theology and their politics, they're loud. So you have to be loud back. If you're offering any kind of alternative or pushback, you have to be loud. Um, and I, I have no problem doing that, you know. Uh, but it was definitely weird coming back. I remember, like, I counted, like, 14 Confederate flags my first weekend home. Um, it was just, just, like, so weird to be back, you know, coming from, like, you know, mostly progressive Flagstaff, uh, Arizona to back here and um, where I'm getting like glared at for wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt in Walmart, you know. Um, so like I'm under no like illusion that this type of work is going to be anything other than difficult, especially when it really gets to rolling. Um, I mean, even I just had someone last week tell me that I should go live in California because they didn't want liberals like me here. Um, so especially when the church stuff really moves more to the forefront, um, I definitely know it's going to be difficult and there's going to be a lot of that, um, you know, backbiting and, and stuff that happens. But honestly, like, I just, I'm not interested in it. And uh, so I know it's going to be hard, but we're just going to dig our heels in because like we believe that like a different world is possible and that even these people who are so against would, would be so against some of these things when they start to come to fruition, like, it's ultimately still for them too, whether they, they agree or want it or not. Like, um, and we got to just work to break down those barriers the best we can pastorally on some days. And then some days maybe through, you know, shouting in front of the Confederate monuments in front of our, you know, town hall or whatever, but, um, it's going to be interesting for sure. But as of right now, um, it's pretty mild and, uh, but I'm under no, no illusion that it'll stay that way. Um, and honestly, I'm really just excited and, and kind of invigorated to be back um, here and being back in my community with these people um, that, like, I spend the majority of my life with. So it's um, it's really good and it's really exciting. And I'm just looking forward to whatever 
chaos <laughs> the spirit kind of stirs up um in the middle of all of this work yeah well uh more power to you for sure <laughs> as you uh put some some flesh on those bones um yeah I, I think maybe one other thing to stay on the theme of uh place and and being in alabama in particular i think you know a lot of people have different ideas about the south biases and so on especially when people are organizing or doing other kinds of political work. And just, you know, in the last year, I feel, though, everybody's talking about Alabama. Um, it's been a central place for the Amazon Warehouse Union Drive, uh, the miners on strike, and so on. Um, so I think people are maybe reevaluating that, or I hope so, anyway. <laughs> and a long history of Christianity and the left there, too. What do you think about the place that the South plays in political movements and organizing and you know, how, how are you maybe uh, channeling that sort of spirit of uh, lefties and, and Christians sort of getting together in a place like Alabama? Yeah, you know, one thing, side note, I was so stoked to see you guys cover, like, um, the Amazon, like, union stuff and go on and be a part of, like, the Valley Labor Report. That was, like, super cool to see. So I'm super thankful for that. Uh, because, like, so often, like like you're saying, like, there's these stereotypes and ideas about the South um, that are just, like, so ridiculous um that happen uh especially by liberal minded folks it's so weird to me and they they could like not be just so completely disconnected from like what the world is like here um and so as far as like just like what place that the south plays in political movements like historically like it, it played it's played a central role um i mean like go all the way back to the 30s to the 50s with like black communist sharecroppers in alabama uh, who were like deeply, you know, committed to faith. You know, these are people who are like, you know, have like, you know, communist like propaganda in their left hand and their Bible in their right hand, like <laughs> advocating for workers' rights and racial equality long before like anyone else was. And so like that's like deeply rooted here. Um, it's, you know, it's I would say mostly like gets like pushed the wayside and people don't think about it but like especially in marginalized communities like I, i'm a white dude but like you know like so so much like politically active uh marginalized folks here black folks are like are like i've been on the forefront of like advocacy and change and like just to ignore those things based on stereotypes is just so ridiculous to me but like like you said like we, we can talk about like the black communist sharecroppers of the 30s and the 50s like we can talk about like the civil rights movements and the things that have happened here like in connection with that uh, and then or we can talk about like the ongoing labor organizing struggles like which we are seeing you know with um the amazon uh, union busting happening and with um you know the 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 mine workers right now who are like undergoing like literally like physical violence people driving their cars into them and you know i would say that what's crazy to me is that probably most of those union people are not like would be considered leftists right uh, I would say probably the majority of them would probably be considered themselves Christians. And to me, like the place that like the political movements and like organizing like this so central like to the South and like what what is like so awesome about this place is like it doesn't take much to like really radicalize someone if you just like treat them as like a, a, a human being and you speak their language. Um, because like those union workers, they want they want better wages. They want better health care. They want to be like taken care of and not be like uh just completely exploited by their bosses and so like there's this opening there especially if you can speak the language of faith and so like i think that's just very important um people talk shit about this state so much and it makes my blood boil and talks about the south in general and honestly it just reinforces like 
the resistance that like poor like working class folks have against like liberal leaning policies it just reinforces like their aversion to it um because like it just they don't care <laughs> they don't you know it makes it seem like as if like you know the democrats definitely don't don't care about poor uh southern people and i i fully believe that they do not care um uh, but they could at least try to make it seem like they do um but they, they they're not and they're not going to and so like that's where like these you know union workers organizing and like grassroots movements in the south whether that be like i mean you go all the way back to like the highlander center center and uh, things like that but you know you have like local organizers um you know speak the language of these people and that's like so critical um to seeing how that fleshes out and for me it's like the south is just like a really it's a hotbed um sometimes it feels like a pressure cooker uh it feels like it could just explode but there's just so much potential here um there's so much potential for change uh and organizing and just political shifts i think and it just takes the people being willing to do the work um and I think just even going all the way back to like this idea, just like the general kind of way community works here, even like on just a superficial surface, you know, like surface level, uh, like already makes it kind of like so many steps ahead for like understanding of like mutual aid and solidarity. It's just like already kind of there's like a it's like these seeds that are already kind of there and they just need the right kind of water and the right kind of like uh people to like pour into those things to kind of help bring them to fruition and bring them to the forefront um so it's always weird when people just like just dog on the south or alabama especially um because to me it's such a fertile soil for political action and cultural change uh especially if you can speak the language and to me that's something that excites me being here there's so many like great great organizations like uh mutual aid organizations happening in and around the state um, throw, you know, just like in Gadsden, Alabama, there's this community protectors project, um, which is like super rad. And they're doing so much advocacy, like faith advocacy with like kind of leftist kind of political approaches, mutual aid, free store, all this different stuff. Um, and so like it's here and it's happening. You just don't get to hear about it as much as I, I wish you did. But um, I definitely think, you know, the South is just a fertile soil for political action and cultural change. Um, and it, it just keeps getting discounted, I think. Uh, but there's like movements happening and um, we've got to capitalize on those things, I think. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely something I've learned a lot about um, in the last uh, year or so uh, and for the better. Um, so cool. It's, it's good to hear you talk about it and sort of uh, reaffirm those, those thoughts. Well, uh, listen, politics, uh, theology, it's all very cool. We love it. Can't stop talking about it. But... Uh, it is also very important to talk about another project that you have been involved in uh, and like that you've been working on, um, which is uh, even even releasing and kind of building all these like very interesting tabletop role playing games. <laughs> this is such a, uh, a complete pivot in the conversation here at the end, but uh, there's no way in hell we're not going to talk about it. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what what's going on there. Uh, what's your interest in like uh <laughs> what's what's your interest in like role-playing games and like making them um i don't know do you want to say a little bit about that part of your life yeah so i would say like the two primary formative moot like forces in my teenage life were were pentecostal youth group and my dungeons and dragons group um dungeons and dragons tabletop role-playing games in general allowed me to kind of explore my faith uh, in a way that I couldn't explore it maybe at church. Um, 
you know, like I, I remember playing like atheist characters outside of like just tabletop role playing, just being rad. I don't care what anyone says. Like, uh, it's not, I mean, it's super nerdy, but it's just super fun to like take on this new persona and story and explore those things. Uh, so I have like an interest there. And like for years, I had kind of just like not played any, any games. I was a part of like a multi-year campaign that was like really awesome, uh, as a youth, like all through middle school, through high school, um, and then, you know, it kind of fell by the wayside when I got so focused on church and, and ministry and theology and all these things. And um, really in the last year, I just kind of really picked it back up. Um, and all the stuff that I did before, like as a, as a teenager, like with D&D or whatever, was so much homebrew. And so like it's really where I felt like a natural kind of leaning. Uh, but during COVID, I mean, the reason I kind of got back into it is because I realized I didn't have any hobbies outside of church or theology. Uh, like, you know, I read like 50 something books a year. They're all theology books or political, <laughs> political, <laughs> political books. They're all like corresponding to like my actual work life. And I realized like I don't have any like healthy hobbies or outlets. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to get back into role playing games. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to challenge myself to just create a new like one page or front and back or whatever role play game every single month of 2021. And then I like made the first five of this year, like in November of last year, because I was just so amped for it. And I just knocked out all of these games. Um, and so for me, like tabletop RPGs on one end is like, it's a creative outlet creating these games. Like I make all these super weird games. Like uh, my one of my favorite games so far that I made is called It's Britney Bitch, where you play as a version of Britney Spears from across the multiverse, uh, super powered. That's a whole other thing. You can go check it out. Uh, <laughs> go check it out um and so like i do like a bunch of like just really weird fun games and it's been like super cool to think through those things and um i'm really stoked for it and then like i had like a bigger project in february where i had like a successful kickstarter that like funded it like 400 and something percent and uh will release later this year that i'm really stoked about um uh, it's like a kind of a larger project and so this kind of, I hope, just gets to be a hobby that I get to, like, just produce really cool things out of. And then it is kind of rolling over into my spiritual direction practice. And so, like, I, I'm a trained spiritual director, and the, I've been thinking, like, critically, like, through all my training and, and for the last year, is, like, how, how can we use games? Because I was really reflecting back on how playing RPGs helped me process a lot of, like, childhood trauma. It helped me process a lot of my doubts and questions around faith and like all these different things so i was like you know like like why aren't people using this in this way and the more i researched it, is like people are using like rpgs and therapy and counseling and i was like well why can't we use it in like spiritual discovery like why can't we use it and so i began to think through those things and um begin to incorporate it into my spiritual direction practice which has just been really cool um and so it is still kind of connected to theology in some sense but like it's not like strictly christian or church it's just like a really cool medium for self-discovery. Um, so even like, especially like within marginalized, like sexual gender identities, like someone who maybe doesn't, you know, assigned whatever gender at birth, who they're not at a place where they're not in a safe environment to be able to really explore that if they're not feeling that way anymore. Um, and so like RPGs get to be an outlet for those people or for their sexuality or for being an atheist or, or maybe even trying out faith of some kind. Um, so RPGs are just a really cool medium for like self-discovery, uh, even outside of just the strictly spiritual sense. And so like I'm really interested in how that can be used to kind of foster those things in people. 
Um, but then just in general too, like I just love making weird games. Um, you know, I think um, I just released a game this month. It was the, actually the first game I started designing. I started designing with my kids called Monster Tower. And I think Matt, you actually had a early copy of it. Uh, but I just released like 2.0 and um, you know, like it's something I get to do with my kids. Some of the games, obviously they don't get to do cause they're young. Uh, but it's just a really fun, creative outlet for me. And, um, you know, in another life, I would have not been a youth pastor slash pastor slash church planner over the last 12 years. I would have, like, probably been some kind of tabletop RPG designer, like, working for somebody else. But uh, so I'm thankful that I just kind of get to do that and it'd be a creative outlet in the hobby because I didn't have any of those. So it's, it's, it's been really nice. It's so cool here to, talk, to hear you talk about it. Um everyone who listens to this if you have a child in your life or even if you just have adults in your life i guess no matter what uh you should go play monster tower it is super fun um so here's here's how it works or at least this is my understanding of it it's been a minute since i played it now but um i played with my son he's six and he really loved it so you take your old copy of jenga that you've never played (laughs) ever because nobody likes jenga and uh, you use that to fight monsters. So, like, uh, if you want to do something really crazy, you have to pull out a certain amount of uh, of, of Jenga tiles. And uh, you know, if the if the tower falls over, then that means you lost. And you know, you have to take a certain amount of like damage. And oh man, it's such a cool game and such an innovative uh, mechanic to uh, bring to a, a role playing game that's not just like rolling die. And uh, it's such a cool thing. So it's it's worth checking out for sure. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Well, uh, Ryan, it's been so fun to hear a little bit more about Jubilee House and especially at the end to hear a little bit more about role playing games. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that one of these days, I think. Um, So keep in touch. But in the meantime, where can people find what you're up to? Uh, How can they support what you're doing? And maybe just uh, learn a little bit more about all the projects that you have on the go. Yeah. um, So RyanKagel.com has a link to every possible thing that I have uh going on in my world um but if you want to like really get like connected to the work at jubilee house uh it's jubileehouse.co so jubileehousecommunity.co and um we'd love for you to get on there and like go check that out and uh, think through like um you know just check it out and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it or maybe support like we're looking for um sponsors to uh, sponsor young adults in spiritual direction right now specifically lgbtq plus youth uh here in our county and so like if you want to just learn more about all that and kind of like what we got cooking up those are the places to find it great well thanks so much for coming on the show ryan and uh we look forward to hearing more about uh jubilee house as it goes yeah thanks i appreciate it so much thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support our podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast You can also, and you should, uh, support everything that Ryan is up to. You can find it all sort of collectively organized at ryankagel.com. You can support Jubilee House uh, there, and you can also support Ryan's very cool, very fun other side projects that are all great. Uh, Our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, 
keep your hoods up, will you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, will you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.